my theology, it cannot be, well, when you get to heaven, no, I need something on earth. Hi, friends. This is Under God. I'm Isaiah Lewis. And I'm Jackie Newsom. And we are two outsiders who are coming together to question the text and build community together. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. So I just want to do a brief recap of how this works in Under God. We're at Under God through Under God. Under God (laughs) in every preposition thereof. Thank you. We engage in a prayer practice called Lectio Divina. And all that means is divine reading. And so we read the text in a way that helps us reflect and question and think about what's going on. We use lectionary texts to help guide us. What are lectionary texts? Well, a group of people got together back in like, I don't know, 60s, 70s, sometime when Isaiah and I weren't born. And they decided what scriptures were going to be read on what days. So each week we have a choice of four different scriptures. We alternate choosing one. We read the scripture and we use the CEB Common English Bible translation of the scripture because we think that it's easy to understand. And so we want to make sure this podcast is accessible to everyone. So we read the text and then we pause. We reflect on what we just heard and then we shout out words and phrases that stood out. So we read again, we pause again. We're not going to actually air our second reading, but you should feel free to read it a second time. And then we start to talk about the context, the content, and then we discuss. And at the end, we give our beautiful liberationist farewells in the form of our benediction. And we have borrowed from two of our home church traditions. We've created a mashup and we send you on your way. And that's it. So today we're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And this is a really interesting passage in part because John 3.16 is arguably one of the most famous verses in the world. If you know any verse in the Bible, um, you probably know John 3.16. So we're going to be looking at this passage and trying to figure out what's going on. What's the Gospel? A gospel, there are four gospels. They are in the front of the New Testament. The New Testament is the bit where Jesus shows up. And the four gospels are four different takes on who Jesus was and what he did and why he died and how he rose. So John is the last one. And it's pretty different from the other three. So yeah, as Jackie said, I'm going to be reading from the CEB, the Common English Bible, starting at verse one of chapter three. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it is not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from. Or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus asked, How are these things possible? Jesus answered, 
you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right. So we're going to take a moment to pause and think about words and phrases that stuck out to us. A Pharisee who's named coming to Jesus at night. Mm -hmm. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear it, it's sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. The conditional, unless this, then not that, in verse 3. Born of water and the spirit, shout out to the Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus kind of having this takedown of Nicodemus. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know about these things? Petty. Yeah. yeah I was going to call that out, but then I didn't want to be me. No, no. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. I will be petty. I will step up to the petty place. Like, come on, bro. Like... Calling or recalling Moses. Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. How are these things possible? That's all I have. I feel like every single line at some point, if I stare at it long enough, becomes a phrase that I want to say. Yes. Yes. Like, absolutely. That's why I just have to stop after a while. Yeah. Because then I'll just end up repeating the whole thing. Do we have context that we want to give? The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day who are often painted in almost all of the Gospels as being either anti-Jesus or anti-Jesus's message and are often used as a foil, you know, for whatever Jesus is saying and doing. But we all, we have to remember that everyone involved is Jewish. So it's not about Jesus not being Jewish and them being Jewish. It's about everyone being Jewish and Jesus doing something different. I think that's an important constant reminder. And I guess for context, want to just bring to folks memory and I'm going to need your help with this Isaiah so Moses is understood to be I think often called a prophet mm -hmm. who leads the people of Israel out of bondage out of Egypt into the promised land by talking to the Pharaoh and by trying to convince the Pharaoh to let God's people go and so the reference to the snake is when the snake turns into the um the stick is that what happens mm-hmm no, that's a, it's a different reference. So Thank God Isaiah is here. Because literally this is just me remembering from when I was like a middle schooler with my mom like telling this story and I thought it was super weird and so it like got burned into my brain. So I'm going to look it up so that I can give you like a seminary educated explanation. But this is not talking about the Pharaoh bit. This is talking about the like really God and the Hebrew people having a contentious relationship. And then... 
trying to resolve that through nailing a snake to a stick. Definitely don't remember that story. Would greatly appreciate more information. Okay. Yeah, it's super weird from beginning to end. In order to understand the, like, Jesus is a snake on a stick reference, we got to go back to Numbers 21. What's happening in Numbers is people are still wandering about in the desert, and it's just talking about trying to figure out how to, like, not suck as a community of people because they're still basically in the early stages of of doing that and in the early stages of a relationship with god who they don't trust fully for many reasons and i think that sometimes we talk about that unsympathetically but i for one find that super pertinent this sort of deep cut from john is talking about like god trying to lead the people into this this place and take care of them and they're kind of like We don't want it this way, though. And then, I don't know, God sends these snakes, the snakes bite them, and they're like, yeah, but like maybe not snake punishment. And then God (laughs) is like, okay, here's a way to not die if you get bitten by snakes, which in and of itself just feels very, I feel like we need to talk about that. It's a passing reference, but it's talking about how Jesus is that snake on a stick that like heals you from snake bites. Right. It's a reference to the cross. And so it's just a, it's like a foreshadowing of the crucifixion with the idea of something, something that has saving power being up on a stick, if you will, on display for people to be able to see and therefore get healing from. So it's, it's supposed to be this beautiful symbolism. Which I get, but it's also super weird. And I want us to never forget how super weird it is. And see, this is a problem with Lent because you want, all I do is talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the, right, the problem is like this, this whole snake bite and then snake on a stick thing feels one, very punitive. And two, like, when is the first time we get a snake reference? Garden of Eden. Why, why are we aligning a snake reference with Jesus? That doesn't feel comfortable to me at all. And then it's like, I don't know, for me, snakes have a negative connotation. And so I really don't want to compare Jesus to a snake. And then the snake being on a stick is like healing people. But the way Jesus died in the crucifixion is also like incredibly traumatic and like gruesome. And so I feel like the comparison there, the symbolism isn't quite on point. Do you want the snake to be mangled? I don't, I don't think I want a snake at all. It's probably my problem. Like, it's not like this. Yeah, but maybe I do. Right. It's not this snake is like bleeding and like in agony. And it's like, it's like, what? You want like a like a Mel Gibson snake? Yeah. Like, what are we doing here? I don't like I, I can appreciate item on stick representing healing, but I feel like that's as deep as the reference can go. I don't think so. Fix it, Isaiah. The way that it speaks to me is like this thing that initially is is causing you all of this pain and all of this suffering is transformed into a thing of healing. Snake's biting you. Snake is poison. The solution to snake biting you, it isn't that God then like banishes all snakes after the people say, oh, we sinned. We're sorry. It's like by looking at it, you heal it. That the thing that is causing the suffering is the thing that you have to face in order to receive the healing um and that that's true both in numbers and in the crucifixion in a way that i think is is actually there's a lot of depth there at least for me because we as christians say that we 
believe that Jesus conquers death by dying. But like, Jesus doesn't make us all immortal when Jesus dies. People still die. People still suffer. People are still oppressed by empires and persecuted and abused. Violence still exists, and yet we claim that the world is different. The world is made new through Jesus' death and resurrection, um, and that we can have eternal life. Like, it's something that Nicodemus doesn't understand, and Nicodemus is one of the most educated people out there. And it's something that we still don't understand because we still see the poisonous snakes. And so it seems really strange to proclaim that, like, the world is different, that, that life wins, that there is um, hope, that there is some type of goodness that endures, um, that is the, the fundamental nature of reality, when there's so much evidence to the contrary. But I think that part of how we get there is by looking at the pain and looking at the suffering, confronting it and not denying it. And through that, we become transformed through really acknowledging it and not shying away from it, that's when we can begin to encounter God honestly and to do the work that changes the world. Um, I'm really concerned about that being a directive. I'm trying to think how that comes across on a Sunday morning to a church filled with people who have experienced some sort of abuse, trauma, or pain. I like the idea that Jesus conquered death by dying because you know, you know me, like Jesus is super baby. So like, cool, fine for Jesus and fine for a story that's not a documentary of the people of Israel. Like, I just don't think the answer to trauma is like, continue to look your trauma in the face. I don't know. I feel like that can be kind of dangerous or that can be perverted in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Like it just, it seems like you have to be very careful with that directive. And I don't know the careful way to teach that to maybe a young person, like a middle schooler or high schooler or who is entrenched. Like there's some dysfunction coming along with that interpretation. I'm worried about like that sect of people hearing this. Yeah, I hear you. I don't think it's the case that you're supposed to like lean into the trauma. And I don't, I don't want to be flippant with it, right? I don't want to suggest that like, this naturalizes suffering. Like one of the ways that the scripture has been a tool of oppression has been in telling people who are experiencing oppression or intimate partner violence weirdly has been this, this has been like the idea that, you know, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And therefore any suffering that you're experiencing is in some way redemptive because like Jesus suffered. So you're suffering. So you're you know, by the transitive property being one with Jesus? No, definitely not. I think it's the opposite. I think it's that because Jesus suffers and moves through it with us, we have the ability to look it in the eye and move through it. We have the divine power. Is that what you're getting at? Well, yeah, that Jesus is, is, is with us and enables us. Like you can't heal a wound, either physical or emotional or systemic by just saying like, Oh, that's not real. Michelle Alexander really changed the discourse around mass incarceration. I think coined the term, did she not? Mm-hmm, she did. In the new Jim Crow. Like we were not having the conversations that we're having now if she hadn't written that book. The number of other books, the number of movies that have come out, the fact that there is now a more unified language in talking about the impact of police and state violence, particularly against um, black and brown communities and 
we're not in a good place now. But if, if we didn't have people and language that were making us look at it, I don't know if this, this hope is warranted or not. Many of the black and brown friends that I have, I think in some ways didn't need to be reading these books because they already knew from mm -hmm. personal experience. Mm -hmm. And so that stuff is more of a wake-up call for white people in particular, but more broadly, folks who didn't want to look at it. And those folks are going to be the people who are complicit with it. And I think that, I mean, if you put the snake on the stick, you have to look at it, right? And I wonder if that's part of what's happening here. Like, you can't look away. And then I start thinking about James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily a reference to the book, but to the imagery mm -hmm. in relation to what you said about certain folks maybe not needing to to consume certain things because they know it because it's their lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about lynching, right? And I'm like, okay, Black people did not need to watch Black people hang from trees to understand that it was wrong or hateful or traumatic or to be motivated for change. Mm -hmm. And when white people saw Black people hanging from trees, they were cheering. Mm -hmm. so, so watching that was not encouraging change. Mm -hmm. Going to the lynching memorial and watching the casket-shaped stones hang from the ceiling outside when it's 90 degrees in Alabama, maybe that encourages change for white folks, mm -hmm. but still produces, like I went to the, the right lynching memorial and was, ooh, I was messed up, right? I was in bad shape. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to go there. I didn't need to see that mm -hmm. because I wasn't confused about how horrific that shit is. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the white folks that I, I was with were like, oh, this is so terrible. Oh, my mm -hmm. gosh, white people are horrible. Mm -hmm. I didn't need that either. Right. So maybe I'm getting too stuck in the weeds because I think I appreciate on some level what you're saying. And I think I agree with it on some level. And I think, I guess for me, it just has its limits. I mean, yeah, that makes sense to me. So what do you want to do with it? With the snake? Or with the whole passage? Because I feel like... Oh, I don't feel like this ruins the whole passage. I just feel like the writer of John engaging that throwback maybe didn't anticipate chattel slavery and lynching. That's all in the United States. That's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't ruin the whole everything that we read. Like, to me, this is very separate from what's happening between Jesus and Nicodemus, which is Jesus using Nicodemus as really a prop. Like, Jesus, Nicodemus is there in many ways as a symbol too, so that Jesus isn't talking to Jesus' self in revealing, right, that this whole thing, again, a lot of this is coming from the Hermeneia, but in revealing that the miracles shouldn't be what has you thinking that I am the rabbi, right, or that I am the Messiah, but there is something deeper happening here that I need you to start trying to see and appreciate, and you over here talking about Am I going back in my mom's womb? And it's like, bro, you're missing it. Like, come on, keep trying. You're smart. Let's, let's, like, let's get there. Let's, let's remember the divine here. And what I'm trying to tell you is you keep relying on what you see, but that's not what's going to get you to this real gift. I guess there's some more stuff going on in this text that isn't overcome by what I would argue is simply an attempt to foreshadow the cross. And this is a Lenten scripture and that was the effort and I'm cool with that and I can handle that yeah but 
what you were talking about about the the cross and the lynching tree right like i feel like jesus is maybe trying to say what you're saying and i feel like maybe i'm playing the role of nicodemus in this conversation in the sense that these two folks are in maybe having they think they're having the same conversation but they're not hmm. but i think the text that we have is this religious leader coming in secret to tell jesus I think you're dope. And Jesus being like, appreciate you coming at night. (laughs) But let's talk about what really matters here. And it's not you thinking I'm awesome. I care about your soul and your spirit. And you keep worrying about these outside things. Like you keep worrying about these miracles and you keep worrying about what you can see. But I'm going to need you to go a little bit deeper. And that's why he gets petty with the, how are these things possible? And Jesus is like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to tell you. I'm looking for why is this a Lenten text? And I'm looking for what is this text about? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer for what this text is about is it's about this revelation of who Jesus is and how we need to be thinking about seeing or hearing from, from Jesus. And this is an example of someone who is understood to be actually incredibly pious and incredibly educated, not really understanding how Jesus works because they're worried about the wrong thing. And how often are we worried about the wrong thing that we're missing the true, real, divine meat of things, meat of what Jesus is trying to tell us, right? So to me, if we're trying to like sum up, if this is trying to be a Bible study for the dropouts, it's like, all right, well, maybe sometimes we're missing the mark because we're worried about the wrong thing. And Nicodemus gets to be like an example of that, right? And then part two, why is this the Lenten scripture? Because we're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we know goes with the Lenten theme. And we're talking about people having a deeper understanding of their faith and of their belief system, which is what I think these 40 days, 40 plus days allow us to do. So to me, that is sort of the clean cut. Like if you came to listen to this episode to get some Bible study, or you wanted to learn some like facts and feel like we stayed on point, that's the answer, right? And so now that we give you an answer in three minutes, now we're going to talk about this deeper, more difficult thing. And to me, more interesting thing, which is this complicated snake reference and Moses reference and its attempt to foreshadow or to talk about the crucifixion. I don't know. I'm just really feeling Nicodemus right now. Here's this guy. He's doing everything he can think of to try to be righteous, right? He's trying to be in good standing with God, whatever that means. But he has this feeling that like maybe the way he'd he'd been taught to do it isn't quite right. So he sort of like skulks towards Jesus, right? He goes like at nighttime to try to figure stuff out and he's just way too literalistic about it. And Jesus is trying to explain like, no, I've been here. Like I need you to see what's actually going on. And it doesn't have to do with the steps that are involved of doing it right. It has to do with, like, I need you to understand, you know, the suffering that I'm experiencing or going to experience and the love that I have and, you know, that you're not seeing it. Right. This is not about a checklist. This is not about, oh, man. Right. Because Nicodemus is stressed and like, how do I get back in my mom's womb? It's like, no, no, no. This is not what this is about. This is about relationship. This is about faith. This is about engagement. This is about something other than what you've been doing. Right. I think about mercy and I think about teaching at the prison as two places where, especially at the beginning, but even now, sometimes I find myself very worried about doing things right. And Mm -hmm. that gets in the way of like actually listening to people and actually being in 
a relationship and like the anxiety about being good in some way, either being good towards the person or towards, I don't know, the movement or towards God or whatever. Like, I just want to be good. Like that actually gets in the way of being with somebody um, and listening and thereby being transformed. See, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm justified in my feelings because I feel like nothing matters if I don't do a good job. And the good job has to be winning. You know, the good job has to be getting this person out of this oppressive predicament Mm -hmm. uh, because the predicament that they're in is wrong fundamentally, you know? And so it's like, that's why I feel so frustrated about work now and always, (laughs) right? But it's like, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I made that person feel seen or heard or loved because at the end of the day, that person walked away without this going away. And I think, I guess what I've been hearing you say during this session is that's not true because Jesus still died to conquer death. Like there, there, and that doesn't mean that we don't die anymore. And that's really hard, right? Yeah. Cause it feels not good enough so often. Yeah. Jesus died so that I might live. What kind of life is this? What kind of life is this? The lynching tree. What kind of life is this? Watching people suffer. What kind of life is this? Not being able to be perfect or superhuman to make things better for others. What, what kind of life is this? Yeah. That Jesus died so that I might live. And it can't, my theology, it cannot be, well, when you get to heaven, no, I need something on earth. And so I guess maybe Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus there is some freedom here. You're just not seeing it. I don't know. Tell me more about why you were saying a couple of minutes ago, you felt like Nicodemus in our conversation about the lynching tree. I think they're connected. Ooh, come on, Doc. I mean, there's real power in what you're saying. Like, yeah, like there are some real limits to like, okay, I care, but at the end of the day, you're still in jail. Like at the end of the day, you still live on the street. At the end of the day, you don't know whether or not this cat bite that you got trying to help out a friend is going to make you lose your hand because you don't have health insurance, right? Um, right. Is a thing that this week, one of my one of my friends was dealing with that because his hand swelled up because he got bit by a cat because he was trying to help. You know, it's a whole thing. His hand is fine. He will be okay. But it was scary. It was really scary. And it is super overwhelming at times. And also the looking is part of the healing. The being in relationship is part of the healing. Not doing it right, not being perfect, but like being in relationship, staying and and looking at the suffering and being in the suffering and knowing that Jesus is, that Jesus suffers with us, with the most vulnerable among us. It doesn't make the suffering okay. It says that like these people are holy, that you are holy, that being right is not what this is about. And you're right, like... Black people did not need to see a lynching to know that lynching was wrong. White people could see a bunch of lynchings, take pictures and put them on postcards, and seeing it did not make them get it. And if that doesn't make you get it, I don't know what makes you get it. So I I don't know what to do with that, but I think all of that is in here. Because, like, I mean, I don't know. You have verse 11. I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we've seen, but you didn't receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, Mm. how will you believe when I tell you about heavenly things? Come on, come on. I feel like that's the conversation we just had. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, Nicodemus comes by night, but he still shows up, you know, and he's somebody who in chapter 19, like 
16 chapters from now, he shows up again. And then at the end, he's giving all these spices and, and whatever for Jesus's burial. So there's this like slow burn transformation that's happening in Nicodemus. Like, yeah, he doesn't look great in this passage. And Jesus is still willing to be in relationship with him. In some way, there's something working in Nicodemus's heart to help him see, even if imperfectly. Like, I'm not going to say that he's a good guy because I don't think that's necessarily true and I don't think it's necessarily useful. But like when I read this pas passage, I, I feel like Jesus is undeniably, unequivocally aligned with the folks who are suffering, the the people like, you know, the, the crucified people that liberation theology talks about, like, mm -hmm. and the folks who are not most directly experiencing that oppression, their work is to see it and to know it and to get it and to work to change it. I'm wanting there to be a place in this passage that proves and or supports this idea that it is not the job of the oppressed to teach the oppressor. Yeah. Because I think what becomes dangerous is, see, Jesus helped Nicodemus. Why don't you help white people? Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's room or there is this idea that Nicodemus came to straight to the divine, acknowledging the divine acknowledging ignorance, got told about his ignorance and still stuck around. Mm -hmm. And the steps Nicodemus took in even showing up are a reflection of Nicodemus doing Nicodemus's own work, mm -hmm. right? Versus Nicodemus relying on someone else to do the work. Because even, you're right, even though he shows up at night, he shows up knowing the truth or mm -hmm. at least some of it, acknowledging Jesus as rabbi. Mm -hmm. Not showing up saying, hey, people are saying this is bad. I'm not so sure. Like, wouldn't it be better if you just didn't run from the police? Yeah. And I mean, we were joking earlier about Jesus's response, but like, he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things, right? So Jesus has some questions for him, right? This is some accountability mm. here, you know, like, you're ready to talk about this, but what do you actually know? Mm. And I, I mean, I, and I think that there is love in that, like. I think there is love in that kind of accountability. Can I encourage a wrap up? Yeah. What's the good news? And what's a Linton lesson if they're separate? <laughs> we didn't talk about verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I wonder in the midst of this conversation, what work that does. Mm -hmm. A reminder that it's not about condemnation or getting it right, which we've come back to several times, both for us now, for Nicodemus then, that Jesus is going to, Jesus is going to Jesus for our sake. And I feel like in staying in this, I don't know, truthful, loving, hard, accountable relationship with Jesus, like we get saved through that relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I feel like I get saved through my relationships at Mercy all the time. Word. Um, and there's stuff that I have not wanted to look at for a long time about myself that I am able to do at church because of the kind of church that it is. It calls me into account, but lovingly, and allows me to see really painful truths about myself with the understanding that I am loved, and that saves me. It is through the relationships that I have that I am transformed. That's really interesting because, so this weekend I canceled brunch with someone who I really care about because I was trying to prep these trials and got to a place where I was like, I'm not ready and this is not fair and I need to not 
do this social thing because I need to go to the jail and get ready. And I came to work and my one of my office mates knows the friend that I, I canceled on. And my office mate was like, so we need to talk about this. Not because the person you canceled on is mad, but because we need to make sure that you're okay and that you're engaging healthy boundaries. And if she was forcing me to see myself in a way that I didn't want to, right? Because I, I was doing this sort of like, my anxiety was out of control. I like, in order to feel okay, I had to work, 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 work. And then it's like, you're not the savior. And she's like, listen, don't do that again. Because you need that community and you need that rest. And we can figure out ways to get you the support you need for these cases. But you like, don't do that again. And it was really interesting, right? Because it was like, well, I would expect someone to be like, bust your butt. These people need you. She's like, no, I'm worried about you. Mm -hmm. And it showed me myself and what I need to work on, which is really a comment on faith. Maybe our listeners don't know me, but I think you know me well enough to know that like court was going to be fine. Those two hours with or without brunch, court was going to be okay. But I could not fathom giving up those two hours. I feel like I feel like more than a than addiction, I just want to like have like a moment of silence of like, yep. Right. This is not where I thought this conversation was going today, but it's exactly what I needed. I appreciate you, friend. Thank you I for appreciate you. Thank you for struggling through this with me. Thank you. <laughs> so beloved. Go. Live as free people. And no matter what, keep the faith, baby. Under God was created by Jackie Newsom and Isaiah Lewis. Our music is by Broke for Free. Is that the Doug theme song? Yes, it is. Shout out to Doug.